Welcome to the One Degree Shift Podcast, where we learn the little changes that future-proof some of our favorite companies and teams. Here's your host, Eric Termundi. Ainsley Robertson is the manager of developer experience at Clio, an incredible company who's just closed another incredible round. Ainsley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about Clio, a little bit about your experience, and, and a little bit about what excites you right now? Sure. Uh, where to start? Clio is headquartered in beautiful Vancouver, Canada, and we make software for law firms, which probably sounds pretty boring, but it's uh, they're pretty interesting problems to solve when you think about a lot of law firms as entrepreneurs and small businesses and the impact we can make on the world if we can make their jobs a little bit easier and increase access to justice as a result. We are almost approaching 500 employees across our five offices in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Los Angeles, and Dublin. And as you mentioned, we just closed our Series D, which was the largest investment of this kind in Canadian history. So lots of exciting things happening at Clio right now. What's exciting me right now is in my role as manager of developer experience, which is a role and a title that we made up to try to fill a need in engineering at Clio. I'm excited about thinking thinking about the, the future of engineering at Clio. And uh, today we're just over 100 people in engineering. What does it look like when we're two or 300? And what do we want our culture to look like at that scale? What do we want our leadership team to look like? And mm-hmm. how do we both prepare for that externally thinking about whether it's our hiring brand or how we're engaged in the community, but also internally, how do we look at the folks who are currently here and prepare them to step into those leadership roles and to create incredible careers while they're at Clio and also set them up for great things after Clio as well. It's also just amazing to see people leave Clio and go on to land their dream job or go on to do something else really great. There's so much that I want to unpack, but you said something about looking at the future of Clio. I mean, the size of the team has grown, not exponentially, but not linear either over the past couple of years. It's been an incredible growth. And when you look at the future of how you're building your team and what you want that environment to feel like, what are the questions that you and your team are asking each other so that you can build that dream team of not just the future, but today as well? I guess one important question is, what are we missing today? Whether it's in skills or experience or maybe people who have done this before or different types of diversity on our team, whether it's gender or ethnicity, I think that as we grow, it'll be really important to figure out like where are those those holes, that different aspects of who we are that isn't represented well on the team yet because we believe so strongly that a more diverse team will be a higher performing team. And sure, I'd love to sit here and and tell you that, you know, building a more diverse team is the right thing to do. And that's why we should do it. But at the end of the day, we also have to make the best decision for the company. And that completely aligns to this as well. Thinking about what do we not have on the team today and trying to figure out how we recruit for and fill in those gaps will set us up to be way more successful as we tackle bigger problems and exciting initiatives in the future. 
Now, let's rewind the clock. It is June of 2018. You've uh-huh. got a 16-person engineering team, of which only 13% are female. Uh-huh. You and the team on a pretty ambitious goal to double that number in a relatively short time. Was it six months? Is that right? Yeah, we had set sort of a a big hiring push for ourselves looking at the last half of 2018 and setting aside gender representation on the team. We wanted to significantly grow the team over that six month period. And you did. And Mm -hmm. the portion of females went up by double, did it not? That's right. Yeah. We, our goal was to get to 25% by the end of the year. And we hit that on, I think it was December 16th. So by the time that we were entering 2019, we were hovering around that like 25, 26%. So yeah, we doubled it. A huge, a huge congratulations. And, and this is where I first wanted to have this conversation. And for those who are listening, I'm going to attach the, the link to your Medium article at the bottom of the episode in the show notes. But you laid out this masterclass, if I can call it that, on <laughs> what and how you did it. And and that's really what I want to unpack. Because when I look at the essence of the One Degree Shift podcast and everything around this methodology is that those who create time and space mentally, those who take the time to ask the questions, and those who iterate, who pivot, who experiment, are the ones who can build what I would call an intentional future. Doubling the number of females in your organization, it doesn't just happen, especially when you're looking at engineering and software development, you know, traditionally a a male dominated space just in terms of numbers. So how did you go about doubling the proportion of, of females in the space? Now, if I can sort of lead you into this a little bit, I saw the word quota in this article and Immediately, my eyebrows shot to the top of my forehead. But let's let's hear it from you. How did you do it, and what can we learn from what you what you've done? I think when it comes to something that's as difficult as increasing representation of women on a software development team, it's really easy to say that it's important all day long, and and end up making excuses for why it didn't happen or why you haven't been successful in moving the needle on that. And as we entered this big hiring push that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, we knew that, first of all, there was a huge risk that 13% would actually decline over the course of a big hiring push like that, simply because close to 90% of our applications come from men. So when that's the pool that you're hiring from, it's very unlikely that you're going to hire a representative proportion of women. And it's really easy to keep doing things the same way that you always have, unless there's some big force that is going to to require you to figure out how to do things differently. And Can, can you talk about that force a little bit? What mm-hmm. was that? How did that come to be? How did you create the space to recognize it and then prioritize it? So a few of us had been at a conference at the beginning of June last year. Um, It's called Canadian Tech at Scale, and it's a conference in Toronto for leaders in engineering. And the first speaker of the day, no one could stop talking about her all day. Her name is Sarah Kaplan, and she came from the Institute for Gender and the Economy. And Sarah talked about 
you know, the business case for diversity and the power of diversity in, in driving innovation. She talked about many things around this, but she mentions at one point the role that a quota can play in creating meaningful change in the makeup of your team. And I thought that was really interesting. I also had the same reaction of like, whoa, that seems really controversial. What, <laughs> what does that mean? How would it work? But honestly, like I came back thinking it, it was too far-fetched. Like there's no way we can get mm-hmm. buy in on that. So to be perfectly honest, I just kind of set it aside. And then we kicked off this hiring push. And one of our directors who is in our Calgary office and is really passionate about this stuff, he's actually been in Calgary for at 10 years with Clio. We just celebrated his 10 year anniversary. Most of that time remote and now we're building an office there and he's really passionate about this opportunity to create an amazing place to work in Calgary. And he watched the first few candidates come through the door for interviews and they were all men. And he messaged me on Slack and I think his direct quote was, I didn't sign up to work on a football team. Let's figure this out. You know, like there's a big opportunity here. So he initially was like, what if we did a quota in Calgary? And that quickly snowballed into, well, we're this hiring pushes um, across most of our offices in engineering roles. Like maybe it makes sense to look at this across the organization or across the department, I should say. I think a, a big factor in actually rolling that out was that our VP of engineering got on board. He's also really passionate about this, very clearly sees the the connection between a more diverse team and a higher performing team, sees the risks associated with a big hiring push, knows all of the data. And so he looked at me and said, what would it look like if we did this? What would we set the quota at? How would we roll it out? How would we talk about it? And so then I sat down and did as much research as I could on where this has been done before, what risks might exist, um, how we can mitigate them, concerns that people would have, how we would message it. And then we just jumped in with both feet. (laughs) So let's be clear. When you implement a quota like this, this doesn't mean that you have to lower the bar. And it also doesn't mean that you've done anything illegal because you're not just going to choose women over men you're going to be looking for more women to be applying. Is, is that true? Can you maybe talk me through both lowering the bar and ensuring that everything is kosher? I think when people hear the word quota, they assume that it means that it's, direct, that it's connected to the hiring decision, that we're going to fill a quota by saying yes or no to a candidate at the end of the hiring pipeline, at the bottom of the funnel, if you will. And how we approached it instead was at the top of the funnel. So like, let's just look at the math here. If we have 90% men going in the top of the funnel, what do you think is going to come out the bottom? And that's exactly what was happening. So what if we changed the numbers and we had more women going in the top of the funnel, but not just more women, more qualified women. This isn't just a numbers game. Like, let's just fill it with people who who aren't qualified to do the jobs we're hiring for. That's not going to get us anywhere. Let's hunt down and find women who are really great at what they do and get them into our hiring pipeline. We're talking at every level or stage of the career too, right? That's right. Yeah. Like most of the hires during that period were intermediate and senior developers. I will admit it gets it gets harder <laughs> the higher you go up. But the theme here is focus. You know, what if we focused all of our energy on diversifying 
are at the top of the funnel, diversifying our Canada pipeline with people who are really good at what they do. And I, I really thought that it would take a while for us to start seeing the impact. I calculated that in order for us to hit 25% by the end of the year, we'd need to be hiring about 35% women, which is a lot more than right. we were normally right. hiring. Like I said, we were at 13%. So I figured it would take a while for us to ramp up to this, but just by applying this really mandate to our project, our big hiring push, we are going to get to 25% women. So you better go hustle and mm. or we better go hustle and, and find great women and get them into our pipeline. It was incredible overnight, not to say it wasn't easy, or that it was easy, it wasn't. But overnight, we hit we hit thirty five percent in terms of how many women mm -hmm. were getting hired, and and then we just had to sustain it. And I think that's the part that's important to understand that like we never we never made a hiring decision based on someone's gender, and I would never advocate for that. But what we did was, and again, we were hiring a large number of people. We were able to just focus all of our energy at putting those great candidates in the top of the funnel. And then I watched our hiring rate. And if it wasn't high enough, it'd be like, we got to crank it up, like go find someone really at the top of the funnel. At the right? top, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I just had to monitor that ratio. And then we knew that we would hit 25% at the end of the year. So where did you go? Who did you talk to? What changed at the top of the funnel that allowed you to hit 35% at the top? Well, everything we could. <laughs> it was right. a lot of a lot of outreach on whether it was LinkedIn or Twitter or I don't know whatever platform you can think of and trying to create meaningful connections, you know, not just a <laughs> a bunch of mass messages that aren't personal. Really looking for women with interesting experience that could really add value to our team and, and trying to establish a connection and, and start a conversation. We sponsored lots of events in the community, which um, of course it's hard to attach ROI to those immediately. So really it's just a brand building exercise in how do we make sure that as many folks in our communities know about us as possible and, and know that this is a great place to work. We have an incredible engineering team that you want to be a part of. And this is a place where you can grow your career. So doing lots of hiring brand stuff like that, creating content on our blog, which can paint a picture, whether it's of our culture or, or how our team works technically, how we solve problems, what kind of people work here, what it might be like to work here, trying to paint a little bit more of a picture for prospective Cleons, as we call ourselves, to envision a, a career at Clio. And then we also tried to engage really the entire department in those activities because we, we at that time, including our uh, product design and product management team, there was about 80 of us. So turning them into a little army to go out and meet with people right. and tell them about their experience at Clio and go to events and speak at events and write blog posts and, and really activate the entire team um, to assist with us. What was the biggest lesson you learned in that six-month process? That it was so much more within reach than we realized. Just right. by shaking up the way that we'd always done things and doing it a different way, this result that I thought was going to be incredibly hard to achieve, it was right there. <laughs> in your early research, were there other organizations that you sort of modeled this after? Were there any companies of inspiration for you? Not particularly. 
So the research that Institute for Gender and the Economy has done doesn't mention any companies in particular, but it, it mentions studies that were done particularly in other countries like Scandinavia, where they've imposed quotas for things like boards of directors. Mm-hmm. So it was more it was more abstract, but it was inspiring yeah. to hear that once those quotas were in place, the impact that they had and how positive it was. And that really inspired us. And would you say that other industries or sectors even could apply a similar framework or a similar process? Like I'm, I'm thinking construction or trades or marine or agriculture or forestry or mining. If there's a better brand building exercise and you increase the number of diverse individuals, in your case, females at the top of the funnel, do you think that would your, your process would be applicable in, in any industry? I mean, hypothetically, sure. I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about today is the inclusion side of things. <laughs> so, Let's talk about it. <laughs> you know, if you can do everything in your power to get women in the door, but if they show up and have a bad experience, then you're not going to be any further ahead than when you started. So I really believe that diversity and inclusion, that it's not really like a chicken or an egg problem, like that in terms of like one needs to happen before the other, but they... I think they just need to happen at the same time. Trying to change the culture of a team that's homogenous before anyone else who looks different than them arrives is going to be next to impossible. And waiting to diversify your team until it's inclusive is probably not going to work. But if you don't do the work to to build, to create that inclusive environment before folks who look different arrive, they're probably not going to have a great experience. And so I really felt like we had done at Clio a lot of the groundwork to create an environment where women could be successful, but I knew that we still needed to do a lot more. What was done and what needed to be done? Over the past couple of years, we we just, I think it started a lot of conversations about this. There were a lot of people who talked about it. It became something that we talked about a lot in reference to our values. We did things like lunch and learns where we showed documentaries about women in tech or Facebook's managing bias training videos. And then what the valuable part, I think, was the discussion we had afterwards as a team. I know that was really impactful for me when I first started working at Clio and I hosted one of those sessions on the managing bias one and the room was 80% men. And we had this really insightful and meaningful discussion about how this bias, particularly towards women, shows up in the workplace. And it gave us language, shared language around it. It gave us tools to then start making some of those changes together, calling out behavior or habits when we saw them, whether it's who's taking the meeting minutes or who's emptying the dishwasher, you know, little things like that, that I think start to lay some of that groundwork. Proactive communication. Is that is that safe to say? I mean, I find that a lot of culture work, regardless of the industry, is reactive. But when you put the groundwork mm. in and ensure speaking the same language, would you say that that's one of those primary keys that you're talking about? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, not waiting until it becomes like a real problem, you know, was proactive in that sense that we, sure, we weren't where we wanted to be yet, but we could start having those conversations and start like moving in that direction together in terms of making our team more diverse, making our culture even more 
inclusive. I also lead our, we have an internal employee group. It's not quite an ERG, but it's kind of like one, um, like an employee committee for diversity and inclusion. And so we started Mm -hmm. leading a lot of that stuff and then also partnering with our people team on an annual inclusion survey, which we run twice now, which I think was another like important moment in Cleo's history when our executive team said, you know, we care so much about getting better and better and better at inclusion that we're going to measure it so that we can show you how it's getting better or we can talk about when it gets worse. And they drew that line in the sand and this past March we ran the survey for the second time and saw in almost every category an, an improvement. And that's really exciting to see. But the other thing is it also gives us data on like where is sentiment about inclusion at Clio the lowest? And then with this employee committee that I work with, like then what can we do in a grassroots kind of way to start the right conversations, to maybe influence other groups like within our people team, for example, to focus on something. So that data has been really helpful as well. And and I think the survey and the data we got from it also allowed us to take more action as an employee group for diversity and inclusion. And I think that was really meaningful to everyone on that group. It felt like we were finally doing something and not just talking about it, um, which is really engaging. A huge congratulations to you and of course to your team uh, for the work that you've done and just the effort it takes to commit to something this long-term that is really hard work. So congratulations to you. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to give to any of the listeners on the other end of the line today? Something that I often get asked is, how can I do this at my company? And I wish it was as simple as create an initiative like this and run with it. But um, I mentioned this once before, but I think something that was really critical was the support of an executive team member and and getting that buy-in at that level. Someone that was on the uh, employee committee for diversity and inclusion with me took me aside a few months in and he was just absolutely perplexed. He said, we've been talking about this for years and like we were trying and we just weren't making any progress. What did you do differently? And I think one of the main differences was was having a member of our executive really at the table trying to figure this out with us and and having our back in in creating meaningful change. So yes, grassroots change is important, but I think it's it's really critical to have the engagement of of someone like that on the executive team. Ainsley, this has been uh, an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for your time. To those who are listening on the other on the other end, uh, know that Ainsley's article will be attached at the bottom of this episode in the show notes. There's a ton more information there, along with some of the research that she's done on how a diverse team just makes more sense from a profitability standpoint and otherwise. So, Ainsley, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was this was great. For more podcasts, show notes, and to connect with our speaker today, visit erictermundi.com. That's E-R-I-C-T-E-R-M-U-E-N-D-E.com. And click the podcast tab. Thanks for listening.